And this, this, last week we explored the theme uh, that I called Embracing the Dark and Inviting the Light. And this was especially in connection with the solstice, with this uh, darkest time of the year, and the movement towards light. And the, uh, the way that over solstice, over New Year's, that even culturally we have some sense of going into the dark and inviting the light, inviting, inviting the new. And last time, uh, many of those who were present wanted to explore those themes. How many consciously explored the themes of going into the dark, inviting the light? Okay, very good. So I want to give some space uh, for people to report on some of what some of what we found. But I want, since there are a lot of people who weren't here last time, what I think I'll do is I'll um, go into the themes of embracing the dark and inviting light in somewhat different ways, with some different different materials than last time, but really bringing out that same uh, that same uh, focusing on the way that at this time of year, at the, in this part of the world, that it is really a powerful way to look at our at our lives to reflect that much like uh, people have done in this part of the world or in this um, with this in this um, in the northern hemisphere this time of year is a time of really both going more deeply within and also inviting the light going more deeply into the darkness as the light is uh, the least on, on solstice and then inviting in some way a new beginning or new intentions to surface as we do on New Year's and we particularly uh, invited some, as it were, countercultural activity, where the culture takes the time when nature is the uh, most quiet and, and in many cases goes into a frenzy of shopping and sometimes of partying around New Year's, uh, even though there <laughs> we, we wanted to... Um, open the possibility to, to work with the time in a different way, to actively cultivate the exploration of the dark and the inviting of the light, the inviting of new intentions. And so it's really an invitation to a kind of uh, coming into stillness and quiet and being with what's present and inviting these new intentions, something, some movement. And so for those of us who can, to work with quiet, to work with uh, stopping, to work with stillness. And again, we have some, some cultural support for that in the fact that many people are not working this week. And I mentioned last time how for me, probably 20 of the last 30 years, I've done at least a week or 10 days on retreat during this time of year. And it's been a very powerful time just to, to see what's there and see what wants to come next. And so I'll talk again about the qualities of going into the darkness, embracing the darkness, and then inviting the light. And so the first, the first theme of going into the darkness, we can explore that in a variety of ways. And we can explore it both in our lives generally and in our meditation practice. Because in a way, what we do when we meditate, what we did in the last hour, was in a way to stop to go into stillness, to go into the darkness, literally, by, from, by many of us closing our eyes, and to invite uh, presence to what's there. 
And generally speaking, when we sit, we invite the ability to be with what's there, and in a way, over the long haul, to invite something new to come, to invite what wants to happen, as it were, or what wants to come out of our being, to emerge. So the first, the first uh, quality of going into darkness is this stopping and this, this cultivating of stillness. There's a, there's a beautiful book, which I looked at some for today, uh, that I really recommend by John Tarrant, who's a Zen teacher who lives in uh, Santa Rosa, called The Light Inside the Dark. And so he, he plays also with these themes. And he, let me see, he said this about stillness and this, this quality of stopping. The ancient basis of spiritual practice is always stillness and silence. We may sit under a tree cross-legged in the quiet room or by the fire. The important thing is that we turn towards an intense inwardness. There silence comes to us out of the dawn of the world from the earliest band gathered on the sandstone cliffs looking for the sun to rise, from the hunter waiting in the spindifex grass for the kangaroo holding the spear out of sight in his toes. And so we, we invite that sti- quality of stillness. We invite that quality of stopping. We let the, all the activity stop. We let the, we let the mind stop as much as it can. We let the body stop. And we have a kind of a faith, and this is really a faith of our practice, that something will emerge from the stillness, that in a way, and this, this, is, this is part of the paradox of working with the dark and the light, that out of the stillness comes movement. Out of the darkness comes light. Out of the stillness comes movement. This is another one of my uh, favorite books by a friend who lives in Berkeley, named Ruth Gendler, who wrote a book called The Book of Qualities, which I I hope is in the bookstore. I don't know if it is. And she, in this book, she personifies about 80 different human qualities. She makes them into people. And she gives them, uh, she actually has a lot of drawings. And this this is what stillness is like. Stillness will meet you for a tea or walk by the ocean. You must be gentle when you approach her. She is more sensitive than we can even imagine, is stillness. And she does not explain herself much. Sometimes I bring her flowers, not because she needs them, she tends several gardens, but because I am better able to meet her when I'm carrying flowers. Her favorite time is dawn. So that's stillness. And so we, we go into that stillness. We go into the stillness that's there in the dark, in, the, in this um, period of, of when, when nature is still and when we want to go into that further to invite something new to occur. We also go into the darkness as, the, as the, having the quality of the unknown or the mysterious, that we, we enter into the darkness of this time and maybe of our being as we do in our meditation, dropping some of our compulsive knowing, dropping the need to know, dropping the proliferation of our minds. And we have to cultivate a kind of not knowing. Again, it goes against the grain. A lot of times we, we meditate and we think, oh, this is what should happen in my meditation. I should get peaceful like yesterday, or I should have this happen. And 
really the, the, the deepest quality of our practice is a kind of radical openness to what is there. And this, this has the aspect of going into the dark, of being, being willing to be with the dark. And to do that, we have to, in some sense, let all the thoughts be there in order that they might fall away. There's a, there's a powerful passage in the, in the um, talks of the Buddha where he talks, where he points to what it's like to have a complicated mind that's thinking all the time, which a few of us have. No names mentioned. So this is, this is the Buddha talks about this as the proliferated mind. And he, he says, here is what the proliferated mind says. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else the person is inwardly perplexed about the present, saying, am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? So you see the Buddha did have a little bit of a sense of humor. Uh, or at least that comes through. So there's that, there's that proliferated mind that, that can bind us. And in, in going to the darkness, we have to kind of be open to let that go and to not be so um, compelled by all the thinking. Um, Stephen Batchelor, who writes wonderfully and had a, has a beautiful book called The Faith to Doubt, he talks about it this way. He says that in meditation, there is a kind of unknowing which is quite different from ignorance. There's an unknowing which is quite different from ignorance. In ignorance, things appear in a way in which they do not exist. There is also a clinging and grasping involved which solidifies this distortion and sets it up as something real and secure. Meditative unknowing is free from such grasping and distortion. Instead of clinging, it lets go. Instead of insisting that things exist in a certain way, it accepts their mysteriousness. Such unknowing loosens our hold on the immutability of the familiar. It is simple and relaxed. It retains a naive, childlike openness. And so we have this quality which we cultivate in going into the dark of working with unknowing, of relaxing our typical knowing, of letting something come from the dark. Again, there's a kind of a faith, really, because it's not that the unknowing is the final place where we rest eternally in, in unknowing, but rather there's a sense, much like the way that we have to be still sometimes in order for things to move, so we, in many ways we have to unknow and drop knowing in order to know in a deeper way. And that's what's invited in our practice. That's what's invited in our going into the dark. There's another, let's see, there's another poem by uh, Rilke. Rilke is really the, the poet who wrote in the German language, is really a poet of, of the uh, fruitful darkness, we might say. And this is a poem that he wrote. I may read another poem from him because he has so much to say, really, about the darkness. He said this, I love the dark hours of my being. My mind deepens into them. There I can find 
as in old letters, the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and understood. Then the knowing comes. So you see there's that sense of he goes into the darkness, but the knowing comes out of it. Then the knowing comes. I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. So I am something like a tree rustling over a gravesite and making real the dream of the one its living roots embrace. It's a lot right there. <laughs> I am something like a tree rustling over a gravesite, making real the dream of the one its living roots embrace, a dream once lost among sorrows and songs. And so there's that quality of going into the dark that lets the deeper dreams come forth that lets the visions come. And I know for myself, um, even I can feel it right now, I've been very, very busy in the last few weeks, and I can feel the settling uh, down as inviting, you know, being in touch maybe with deeper dreams, because there's something about busyness which often keeps us on the surface, isn't it? And so we need this fallow time, this quiet time, to invite something deeper to emerge. And I know in my life over the years that uh, going through cycles of busyness, it's, it's always been important after the cycles of busyness to have cycles of not doing anything, at least for a week or two. Some of us call these vacations, but, but the, they also can be dedicated. Vacations can be dedicated to, to deeper inquiry. What's really there? Is there a dream that I've covered over, as in the poem? suggested by the poem, is there a dream uh, that's wanting to be expressed that I've covered over that really can only be there when I give space for it, when I, as it were, am willing to go into the darkness and see what's present. And that's been really personally crucial, and I know crucial for many of us, to have these periods of uh, not so much activity. And they, again, paradoxically, going into the unknowing can lead to a kind of a knowing. There is a man named Richard Francis Burton who lived in the 19th century and was the English translator of the Arabian Nights. And I found this uh, quote from him. He says, One knows not how to know who knows not how to unknow. This kind of Victorian... <laughs> Victorian grammatical complexity, but he said, I'll say it again, one knows not how to know who knows not how to unknow. So you have to unknow in order to know. And another way this, this darkness gets manifest is in being with the difficult, with the suffering, as many of us were, were sharing earlier, you know, particularly what we do at the end of the sitting. We really, in a way permit ourselves to be with the difficult, with, with challenging situations in the spirit of the community, as it were, in the spirit of bringing attention, warmth, and mindfulness to the difficult. And I, I believe that this is one of the great powers of the practice, that for many of us, uh, before we came to the ideas of mindfulness and wisdom, suffering was just a kind of a black hole that we went into periodically. And we went into it, and at some point we came out, but what was that about? In other words, for many of us, one of the uh, great blessings of this practice is that suffering becomes workable. 
that we have tools and an understanding with which to work with our difficulties. And it's really one of the uh, amazing powers, you know. Um, Kierkegaard once said that the hallmark of despair is not knowing that it's despair. In other words, that we, we, we're totally locked in, in a way, to the darkness. There's no, there's no light. It's totally without any perspective. And what we do with mindfulness is that we have the idea to be with the difficult with some awareness, and that shifts everything. It, it as it were, brings some light to the, what was previously solid darkness, or it, it gives us some space in what, what was formerly totally solid and, com- and compacted. And so we, we find that when we have done this practice enough, we actually start to, by, almost by habit and by, by the force of our past practice, when we enter into suffering, it's not the same as it used to be. I think many of us probably notice this, that we, we have some consciousness and say, oh, um, and again, I'll channel Sylvia's. Sylvia does this wonderful monologue with herself where she says, oh, you're suffering, Sylvia, aren't you? Yes, I am. I don't want to suffer, do you? No. But I am, aren't you? Yep, can't deny it. And then, <laughs> okay, okay, we're suffering, so what should we do? Let's not do anything, let's just suffer. Nope, not good advice. <laughs> and so, and so then we, she would typically move to, well, let's, let's, let's be kind. Let's just, let's just bring, be a little aware. What's it like? I don't want to be aware of myself. It's a good idea, Sylvia. <laughs> and so forth. And so uh, I think we can do that. And what, I'm, you know, what I find in my own experience is that it's, as I practice more, it's really hard to have this total wall of suffering without some mindfulness. So part of me just starts to say, this is suffering. Or you can say, oh, there are those thoughts again. There are those, what, doom and gloom thoughts. Um, don't believe them. And we, can, we start to have some awareness. Um, I got an email a day or two ago from, from a close friend, and she was describing uh, a time, which is happening right now, in which she was feeling... Um, Unsettled. There were some events which happened which were quite unsettling. And yet she also had a sense that this was taking into her into a deeper part of herself. And so she would sometimes experience uh, over the last uh, week or so these times when she would uh, particularly, and particularly these sometimes happen at night where the mind gets a little scared. And in the night she would have these thoughts occurring and some of them would be just old sort of fatalistic thoughts. You're never going to get out of this. It's, you know, this is your fate, etc. And she would, and she said, I would, I would hear those thoughts. I would notice them. But I also could notice that there was a witnessing to them. I was noticing them. And they were not having the same power. There was some kind of awareness that was being open to the whole process. And again, this is what we learn by this practice of being in the dark as we are willing to go into the suffering, as we bring the mindfulness to it, in a way, uh, suffering is never the same again. If we've really paid attention to suffering, and sometimes we have to pay attention to all the very discrete forms of suffering, 
You know, we have to we have to be really aware and have sustained awareness of whatever despair or fear or self-judgment or whatever. We have to really have them in a way be like become these friends. Oh, back again, huh? <laughs> you know, and that comes from the sustained mindfulness. So it's again, it's it's something that is an aspect of going into the dark. Rilke had this beautiful line where he says, we have, we, it's important that we don't squander our pain. Can you imagine having that perspective? Let me see if I can find where, where that quotation is. This is what he said, How dear you will be to me then, you nights of anguish. Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, inconsolable sisters, and surrendering, lose myself in your loosened hair? How we squander our hours of pain. How we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end. Though they are really seasons of us, our winter, our enduring foliage, ponds, meadows, our inborn landscape, where birds and reed-dwelling creatures are at home. He says our difficult times are really seasons of ourselves, our winters, where in some sense we, we learn about that and we, don't, we, no, we no longer squander our pain. It's hard. This is the, one of the hardest aspects of our practice. And yet as we work with that, we begin to see how the darkness can be uh, generative, how, how being with the darkness can lead to this quality of, of light. Um, I was in the last week or so. I was reading a very powerful book that I really recommend to you. Some of you may have seen this. Uh, it's called At Hell's Gate by Claude Anshin Thomas. And maybe some of you have met uh, Claude Thomas. Has anyone met him? It'd be nice to bring him here. He is uh, a Vietnam veteran, and he's also a Buddhist monk. And he went to Vietnam when he was um, 17. And he's, he's actually very cognizant of the parallels between his experience and what a lot of people are going through with, with Iraq. He went to Vietnam when he was 17. He was uh, a gunner, and on the cover of the book, there's a picture of him standing by a helicopter with a, uh, with a machine gun. And he estimates that he actually killed uh, several hundred people. And he, after he came back from... Vietnam, which would have been 1969 or so, he sort of spiraled into about 14 years of very difficult times of drug addiction and alcoholism and even some periods uh, close to suicide. And he went into that. He, he ultimately had really good help. And he went into it. In the 1980s, he uh, met Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese, Vietnamese teacher, and actually spent uh, a long period of time with Vietnamese people, in, uh, primarily in France at Plum Village, where Thich Nhat Hanh lives. And there was uh, an immense amount of healing that went on with him. But he said that what he really needed to uh, do was learn not to run away from the suffering. Of course, all that he was doing with the drugs and so forth was an attempt to run away from it. And so he said he had to face it, and out of that, Came, came tremendous healing 
and the ability to help others. And he, he actually sees that ability to go into the darkness as what will be actually important for cultural healing. And this is, I wanted to read a passage or two from this. This is what he said. All veterans of violence, war violence, street violence, domestic violence, are the light at the tip of the candle and can be a powerful force for healing in the world. The way to that healing is through our suffering, looking deeply at the nature of ourselves, talking freely about how we feel, creating a language of feelings and using it to begin to break the silence that is so necessary to protect and sustain cycles of aggression. He's saying that silence, in that sense, sustains the, um, the violence and the aggression. And so he, he, his work was to go very deeply into the suffering and then to begin to talk about it. And he's actually um, seen himself as a kind of pilgrim and gone to places of violence in the world. He's gone, he went to um, the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. He went to Rwanda. He spent time talking with uh, veterans of the Iraq War. And so it's this, this perspective that actually going into the darkness and all its different manifestations that we were considering can be extremely uh, rich and fertile and lead to deep insight. And, and, in fact, I've heard some say that it's precisely those people who know the darkness best who will be actually the, the most powerful healers, both personally, interpersonally, and culturally. Could you say that name again? At Hell's Gate. And it, I, I got this from the bookstore. Um, so hopefully there's some more copies there. A Soldier's Journey from War to Peace. And it has his own story in it. It's very, it's very moving. What's his name again? Claude Anshin Thomas. A-N-S-H-I-N. I think that's his monk name. Claude Thomas. And so there's something about this ability to be in the darkness that brings, that brings forth the light. You know, nature certainly manifests that, that we, that we stay in the darkness and light comes forth. Um, I think I'm reading a lot of poems today, so I'm going to read another one. Um, this, is, this is from, let's see, where is this? This is from a Japanese poet named uh, Musu Sobai from the uh, 14th century. This is called Buddha's Satori. And this is about how Buddha uh, took his immersion in the darkness and brought it forth into the very light in his own eyes. So this is it. Buddha's Satori. For six years sitting alone, still as a snake in a stalk of bamboo with no family but the ice on the snow mountain, last night, seeing the empty sky fly into pieces, he shook, the morning star awake, and kept it in his eyes. He shook the morning star awake, and kept it in his eyes. So last time we we particularly explored how this uh, quality of um, inviting the light is really crucial to our practice as well. Sometimes, I've heard it said sometimes that there are two kinds of meditation teachers. Um, there are the dukkha teachers and the bliss teachers. 
there are the teachers who say, you have to go into suffering. <laughs> Remember, you know. And, and of course, the, we could, we could um, look at a lot of Buddhist teachings as really focusing on the importance of being with suffering and learning about it and learning about grasping. And yet we, we forget also that the, the core teaching of the Buddha was the four, the four noble truths. And there, it's only half about suffering. And it's the, it's the first truth about that there is suffering, which is in, in some ways this uh, welcoming teaching that, oh, I don't have to stuff my suffering. I can actually be with it. And it can actually, uh, in investigating suffering, I can learn something and actually free myself. The second truth being the cause of suffering in this compulsive grasping and clinging, or we might say pushing away. Part of the suffering of, uh, that we have in relation to suffering is wanting to push away suffering, which in a way consolidates it, if, you, if you're following me. And then the third and fourth truth are really about the possibility of peace, we might say. Peace and light and understanding. Uh, the third truth is that, that some kind of deep peace is possible, some kind of deep freedom is possible. And the fourth truth being the set of practical steps to get there. And so both are important. And, um, and so it's important in our own practice to emphasize this cultivation of the beautiful qualities, of the light qualities, as well as the, the going into the dark. And so we, we in many ways have to do that. And in so many traditions, there's the tradition of the light only coming out of the dark. The, the shaman goes into the darkness. And in some case, you know, in, the, in the, the stories of the shaman, the shaman gets dismembered, taken apart, and then remembers, comes back together, and comes back with a song. There's a, there's a powerful, let me see if I can find this. There's a, uh, a shaman named Matsua who said, who, who said this when he was, uh, I believe, in his 80s. He said this about, this is, also relates to our original question about commitment and discipline. He says, I have pursued my apprenticeship for 64 years. So don't get too upset if you're in your fifth year of meditation. It's not quite going like you want. Okay, I've pursued my apprenticeship for 64 years. During these years, many, many times I have gone to the mountains alone, which is kind of a metaphor for going into the darkness. I've gone to the mountains alone. Yes, I have endured much suffering during my life, yet to learn to see, to learn to hear, you must do this. Go into the wilderness alone. For it is not I who teach you the ways of the gods and goddesses. Such things are learned only in solitude. We could take that both literally and metaphorically, that it's really this metaphor that in the darkness, in the wilderness, something very powerful gets learned, you know, that, that, that in, a, in a way the light comes. And so at this, at this time of the, the year, it's particularly helpful to invite the qualities of the light. And we do this in many ways. One of the ways that we culturally do this is around New Year's resolutions. But I think that really points to the importance of intention because it's really the, the even if we move into the light, even if we have had experiences of the light, what really sustains us is this, uh, both the vision of the light and then the everyday practice of moving towards the beautiful, towards the light. And so I'll talk about both of those. On the one hand, these quiet times 
are very important for us to be in touch with our deeper intentions. You know, what we were pointing to in the dream, in the uh, poem by Rilke, as this dream that is maybe forgotten or beneath the surface, the vision of our life or of how I want to be, that it takes these quiet times to really bring us in touch with that. I know that's been very, very true for me in terms of being busy and then being, being on retreat for a period of time. And so, on the one hand, we can be um, through the quiet, through the darkness. We can be in touch with our deeper resources, with our deeper potentials, our deeper vision, our deeper dream. And whatever takes us in that direction at this time is very, very helpful. And it may be to remember, oh, yes, I have touched that. I remember, oh, I remember that vision that was very, very important for me and it got covered over five years ago. And I want to uncover it and bring it back to, to the surface. Or we may remember, oh, these qualities of mindfulness or compassion or wisdom are really the intentions that I want to strengthen, that I want to deepen, and that I want to give that more of a priority in my life. And that can be a way that at these times we touch with a deeper intention and, and sustain that by... by uh, engaging activities which bring out those qualities. And then we also, many of us have also had the experience which uh, John Tarrant in this book, The Light Inside the Dark, he describes, he, he uses the word mortification. That is, we've had the experience of being connected with the light and having these beautiful experiences and then it doesn't stay. It doesn't stay, right? We have these wonderful visions, experiences, intentions and then something gets in the way and John Tarrant speaks about it as mortification. We thought that we were totally redeemed. We thought, oh, now that I've had these experiences, my life is easy. I remember when I was in my 20s and I was first meditating and doing a lot of retreats, I said, oh, I'll do retreats for a few years and my life will totally get together and I won't suffer anymore. Has anyone had something similar? Some similar thoughts? And... What shall I say? It, <laughs> it didn't quite work out like that, but there's something actually, uh, something actually interesting about having had maybe even a very deep insight and then coming back and seeing, oh, there's still more work to do. And, and, not, and not sort of clinging to, the, clinging to the light. In Zen it's sometimes called, when people cling to powerful experiences, it's called the stink of Zen. <laughs> This, this attaching to, to attaching to beautiful experiences in a way which prevents the ongoing work to be done. And it's that power of intentions that really helps us to, at this time, to be in touch with intentions both on a deep level and then on the level of everyday life where we continually work with intentions. Uh, it's kind of mysterious, you know, that we, we incline ourselves in a certain direction and something happens. It helps. Loving-kindness practice is this kind of practice. Mindfulness practice is like that. We incline ourselves towards awareness. We incline ourselves towards warmth or kindness. And mysteriously, something happens. You know, in other traditions, I know, I know I've learned from uh, Starhawk, she says this is actually the core nature of being a witch, is that intentions have magical powers, that we can actually work with intentions, and they seem to have some impact on our own lives and on others. And so a lot of what can really be worked with here 
at this time of year is strengthening our deeper intentions and then finding ways to have our everyday intentions be stronger. How can I prioritize those everyday intentions to be kinder, to be more wise, to go into the darkness or whatever they may be? And so I would really invite this time as a time to do that. And in in so doing, again, we work with this... um, the powerful aspect of intention, which the Buddha said was at the heart of the understanding of karma. That intention, he said, it is by intention... Let me see if I have this here. Uh, He said, intention, I tell you, is karma. Intending, one does karma by way of body, speech, and mind. That That it's in the intention that we set in motion future intentions and future future tendencies, really, future dispositions. And so in this coming back to both touching deep intentions and touching very ordinary everyday intentions that we set in motion this work, because it's really the everyday intentions that carry us forth in our everyday lives, and that's where we really need to to give some focus. So I'll stop here and really um, invite us in our own ways to um, explore in the next weeks and in the next months this this balance of both going into the dark and inviting the light. And I'll particularly invite um, in a moment people who have, those of us who have explored what that looks like in the last week or so, because many of us did that. So thank you for your um, attention and for this, um, for giving the opportunity to um, read all these poems. Thank you. <laughs>